Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career in life. Today is episode number 381, Broadcasting Your Values, Not Your Accomplishments, with Justin LaHue. You go through life, and, and you learn from your experiences, and you learn from the experiences of others, and you take those on, a lot of times, hopefully to your own benefit, to, to learn and not make the same mistakes that maybe somebody else did as they were passing through those gates. Special thanks to Steve Bain for making this interview happen. My guest today, Justin LaHue, is many things. He earned the Navy Cross for his heroic actions in Iraq in 2003. He has an obstacle at Paris Island named after him, LaHue's Challenge. He achieved the rank of Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps. Yet it's not merely these accomplishments that set him apart. It's the way that he focuses on others rather than broadcasting his significant achievements. We talk a lot about that in this interview, as well as his work at History Flight, a private MIA search and recovery organization responsible for locating and repatriating over 365 missing American servicemen to date. In the show notes for this episode at beyondtheuniform.org, there is an incredible one-minute YouTube video about this. I highly recommend checking that out, as well as our other 380 episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive in to my conversation with Justin. Well, joining me in Fredericksburg, Virginia, my guest is Justin LaHue. Justin, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you for joining me and the Beyond the Uniform audience. Well, it's my it's my pleasure and honor to another Justin to be interviewed <laughs> by a Justin that is, that is on there. There's so few of us that are out there, but yeah, it, but well, it I, really is my pleasure today, Justin. To I be said on the- in our I said in our initial volley of emails, I hate being the lesser Justin on my own show, but um, for <laughs> listeners, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Normally, I give a, a pretty long bio about guests, and I'll, I do want to give a, a little bit of context for Justin. But um, well, the first question will kind of go into this. So Justin is the chief operating officer at History Flight, the world's most successful private MIA search and recover organization, which is responsible for locating and repatriating over 365 missing American servicemen to date. Justin has his own Wikipedia page, which is rare. And so I wanted to give you a few highlights. Uh, he served in the Marine Corps for over 25 years, achieving the rank of Sergeant Major. Paris Island has an obstacle named in his honor. It's the LaHue's Challenge. It's an eight-foot-high suspended log supported by two pedestals that is part of the famed 54-hour crucible event, which culminates the basic training of every U.S. Marine. And he was awarded the Navy Cross for his heroic actions in Iraq in March, uh, Iraq in Ma- March of 2003. Um, most notably, none of that information you're going to find on his LinkedIn page. And I'm guessing that none of this would come up if you were grabbing a drink at a bar with Justin. And so we traded a few emails about this, but I wanted to start off our conversation here in this era where self-promotion is at, is at this all-time high uh, and where you seem to be an example of someone who's not fixated on broadcasting your merits um, and you're not touting these unbelievable achievements that you've accomplished. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, what advice you have for listeners ab- about that or why you don't 
lead with these incredible accomplishments? Justin, that's a great question because I, I have just, uh, I, I found that one of the blueprints to life was e even at such a young age, we have a building block approach to life and you pass through a lot of certain gates as you go through life and, and you learn from your experiences and you learn from the experiences of others and you take those on a lot of times, hopefully to your own benefit to, to learn and not make the same mistakes that maybe somebody else did as they were passing through those gates in their life. And a lot of the people that I had just saw from my youth, whether it was my own parents, whether it was uh, every other neighbor that was part of the greatest generation, uh, the, the one neighbor's in the army, the other one's in the Navy, he's a submarine commander, the other guy across the street had done something that was there. And they may have only done four years between 1941 and 45, or they may have been part of a unit that was in Korea in 1951, or some of the even younger ones who may have been my little league coaches or a few other ones that had served in the rice paddies in Vietnam. I had just found out these were not the things that they led with. These were the things that you found out years down the road after you knew these people and you thought you knew who they were. And then a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, life had taken its toll and they had already been under a headstone in a cemetery out in the side of town before you truly realize after you got in the military and you, and, and you were exposed to stories and when you're going through the military, you were exposed to, hey, wait a minute. A lot of those things that I recall being 5, 10, 15, 20 years old now, then I'm a corporal, I'm a sergeant, I'm a staff sergeant. They're kind of making more sense to me in the way that these individuals lived their lives. And it then led me to go back in time to question survivors to say, what really was Mr. Holmes who had the house on the corner that spent all the time in his wood shop on the back? And you found out Mr. Holmes was a submarine commander with 20 successful combat tours and this. But to me, Mr. Holmes was just a really good human being who let me play in his wood shop or taught me how to do things. And I think I picked a lot of that up along the way, Justin, even when I went through the Marine Corps to say, that I found that a lot of the people who I garnered the most life experiences from were not the people who were telling you all about themselves up front. It was they wanted to know about you. And then after they knew about you, they were constantly asking questions and probing you on what are you doing with your life? How can you do this? And I really looked back on that and said, in their own way, even when they knew they probably was not going to be there. After I grew up, it was them doing their obligation to say, during my time when I have an interaction with young Justin, or I have something here, I'm going to lay down this, this, this process of knowledge that he may not grasp now, but I see where he's going. And eventually in his life, my conversation and where he's going may intersect to help him out long after my impact on this earth is actually here. 
And Justin, and I really found that play out a lot of times in my life like that on people planted seeds in my life that they never were going to be around to see what happened. But I guarantee you, when they walked away from those conversations, they felt better about it. I felt better about it. And I really just aspired to be and pattern my life after those kind of people. I, I love that because um, I love that because I realize how fixated I am on this moment or interaction. And it's kind of like, there's a part of me that can get into this tit for tat of like, what am I going to get out of this interaction? What am I, what is the point here? What are we, what are we doing in this coffee chat or whatever it is? And I love the, um, the strength and confidence of what you're saying of like, first of all, let me focus on the other person and, and, and get to know them and ask questions and learn about them. And then second of all, I don't need to see the fruition of my action. I can impart some knowledge or I can be a presence to this person that they may not even realize ever or maybe decades from now. But that, that confidence of I will show up in a way where it's, it's benefiting the person, even if it takes years for that seed to germinate. There's a, there's a um, really appealing power in what you're saying there. Very well said. Thank you. And I, I also like, you know, one thing that came through when we were trading emails is the, uh, the confidence as well. I'll use the same word, but it's, it's this, you know, I get this sense that it's like, let my actions and my work ethic and the way that I show up in my job, let that speak to who I am rather than having to point back in time about what I've accomplished. It's more of like, I just got this sense of like this hunger of like always proving yourself and always like not, not coasting on your laurels, but allowing your uh, work ethic and, and, and determination and all the things that make you, you let that speak for yourself rather than lit literally in your case, a medal or an accomplishment or a title or all of these things. And I, I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about that. I, I think those things make up a portion of who you are. And they are tangible things that you can point to, that you can say, at this time in my life, with the skills that I had at that time, I was able to be able to perform these certain things that were here. But I remember uh, when I was going through a kind of a middle management course in the, in the Marines, and, and we call it kind of a, a staff NCO course, right? And, and I've really learned how to transition the vernacular of the military over to the everyday person of where they can understand kind of, okay, I understand what middle management leadership is. I don't have to be in the military to understand what that person is talking about right now. I know at this juncture in their life, they're explaining to me, this is where they were at. This is what was going on in their life. And they may be decades beyond that by now, but they're trying to tell me what was the methodology and their thought process at that time, vice armchair quarterbacking it 20 years later to really paint it with a very nice broad brush or anything else to say that, that at that time, here's what the temperature was like. Here's what my life was like at that time. Here's what my personal life was like. And you have to be able to open that up 
to expose that, even the ugly side of maybe one's personal life to help out somebody to say, you are at that juncture in your life now. What I'm going to teach you now is not going to benefit you about what I learned 20 years later after that. It's what I actually learned at the time that I was your rank, your age to do this, knowing that you still have 20 years ahead of you to be able to do that. And a lot of that, Justin, was just looking at another person uh, to be able to tell them uh, everybody's circumstances are different. No two lives on this earth have ever been the same. You cannot take someone else's profile, apply it to your profile, and you are guaranteed the same results if you follow that person's pattern in life, if you apply it to your own life that is there. And at a younger age, I kind of wrote myself notes along the way. Mm-hmm. And I remember writing these notes along the way, Joe, that kept me in check because I kind of knew that as I grew, my perspective was going to change or something was going to happen. But if this certain thing intersected at a certain part of my life at a later time, refer back to chapter whatever mm-hmm. on September of this month of 1999 when you were that person there. So when that person was coming in to talk to me that day, I would pull that book off the shelf and it would be Staff Sergeant LeHue in 1999. And the night before I was going to talk to that person about their problems when they came in, it wasn't about what I learned 20 years after the fact. It was I took the thing down that I wrote notes when I was that person and said these were the important things that were going on. These were the thing. And now I can look back with a 20 year scope, Justin, after that, and then tell that person a lot of things you're stressing out about now. I stressed out the same way about you, but I'm here to tell you 85% of that was self-imposed stress. Focus on these 15% of what you have right now. And that will help you get to where you think you want to be like me in 20 years to do that, uh, and and it kind of had that foresaw along the way to just put Easter eggs as as a lot of the younger generation call it when they're playing video games, they want to hit the Easter egg to do that. I kind of knew to write Easter eggs to keep my own self in check along the way and also be able to be in a position to never exceed my level of authority with my age and not abdicate my responsibility to remember what it was like to be those individuals that were growing up along the way. I I love that. You know, two of the things I really appreciate there is, you know, already in our conversation, I just really admire the extent to which you are hyper-focused on the other person. And I'm just realizing so often when I give advice, I'm losing Uh, that accounting for the difference in age or life experience or whatever else. And so I really love how meticulous you are in in reminding yourself like, yeah, at the time, where was I? And just really understanding where they are in that moment is really, really incredible. And I also love this thought of um, 
of how you are uh, keeping track of these these lessons and you're you know writing these notes to yourself. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Like, do you do you journal on a uh, a daily basis, a weekly basis, or like what have you found helps you kind of keep track of these pockets of these time capsules of wisdom from these different chapters of your life? Justin, that's a great question. And I really do think I can track it back to this. Uh, I lost my father when I was about 13 years old. And, and my mother raised me uh, until she passed away in the mid 90s. Uh, I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps and she had, she had passed from cancer. My, both my uh, sisters who were all older had succumbed from cancer. My father did that was there as well. And it's kind of just myself, my brother, who's a, who's a science professor at Kansas State University, and another brother uh, who now has retired to Guatemala after uh, serving in the entertainment industry since Woodstock and beyond. It was here. And we're all nine years apart, but none of the brothers probably ever figured we would be the last people standing. They, and I looked back, and my father came out of the front end of an LCVP as a private at the age of 28 drafted into the army on 6 June 1944 with the 29th Infantry, which made him one of the oldest people that was probably assaulting the beach at Omaha that day for such a young rank as he was drafted into the military, along with, you know, 90% else of the rest of the country at that time, both in the Pacific and the Atlantic, to do that. And he went on to survive that. He then went on to serve like a 24 year career in the US Air Force all the way through the mid 60s to do that. But that was never mentioned in my house. And after I became a Marine, I can remember the age difference of my father was I, he was 55 years old when I was born. Mm -hmm. and. Trust me when I say that I was a retirement accident that happened in life. When you have a mother that's 40, a father that's 55, and at that juncture in their life, I don't think I was part of the plan that day and age to come along. So I didn't have a lot of those experiences with throwing ball with my father in the backyard because he was too old by the time. I got around to do that. Uh, I don't recall him being, I, I know I was very loved. I had a great upbringing. I was never punished for something that I did not deserve that was there. But on a day-to-day -day interaction, I would not say that when my father went to the woodshed at seven o'clock in the morning and then came back in for dinner at five o'clock every night, that there was some kind of mentorship going on in my life at that time, because there wasn't. I mean, he was there, but he wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And my mother raised us to do this. But there was always that thing where you knew you were loved. It was just a different generation. And he was the one you patterned your work ethic after. He was the one that gave you these little tidbits in life along the way that uh, I'm playing Little League Baseball, but mom's in the stands. My dad's not there. And then you're sitting there as a kid going, is my dad not proud of me? It's the baseball field's in the back of our yard. Why doesn't he come down there? And your mother is there to say, because your father used to be a really great baseball player, and he can't be near the game 
to watch it. If he can't play it, he doesn't want to be around it, but he's very proud that you're doing it. Mm. And at that age, I, at the age of 10, I didn't understand what that meant, but I knew that my mother was in the stands and she's cheering me and she's doing that. And then every time I'd come back from the game or whatever, my dad would ask, so how'd the boy do that was here? And later on in life, I applied it in my own principles. Um, a, a lot of that is the reason I don't go up to the nearest base and teach Marines how to shoot on a range or how to do something like that is when I crossed over out of that uniform, I now recall in my own life what he felt like that was there is if I can't do it, I didn't want to be around it mm-hmm. to do that. However, I wanted to be there to help people who were going through it to be able to do that. And in that manner, you kind of help along the way to do this. But as it gets to the question we were talking about, it is, I never had any direction from my father. By the time that I went in the Marines, he was long gone. But he served an entire career in the U.S. military Mm -hmm. that I could not tap into those learning lessons. And so from the day I got in the Marines, I wrote my mother letters. I wrote people on how it was every day on I don't like this or I do like this. Or I would write journals when I could find the time to write journals that really said, I remember at the age uh, of roughly about 19 or 20, sitting on a seawall in Okinawa, Japan by myself and crying my eyes out. Because I was having these problems as a leader that I didn't understand how to deal with these. And I can remember thinking if only my dad was here because he dealt with those, I could ask him, so what, so what did you do to handle these certain things? But it's kind of like, if you have a pretty good religious background about you, I kind of found out that they don't have to be there to answer your questions. Mm. Sometimes you just have to have that conversation you throw it out there into the ether. And a lot of times you are made to answer those questions yourself along that path. And historically, you could reach back and say, okay, he was a sergeant in 1955 at this time. Mm-hmm. And then now in the, the day and age of the internet, you could research what was going on in 1955 at that time that maybe here's the problems they were dealing with. You can apply it to your own thing. And I just found in the absence of having nothing, I knew there was a better way to leave that seed I talked about before that you can plant, that you will never see grow for my grandson one day to maybe have a little bit easier along the path of answering some of those questions. So his generation could then go and focus on the harder things they have to rather than constantly concentrating on redoing the things that Mm. people answered about that came before them. Because Justin, both you and I know every generation is tested in this life and Mm -hmm. every generation after the previous one has it a little bit harder with Mm. the challenges that they are faced and they have to overcome. Um, So I just knew if I could write a note every third week, maybe every couple of months, it wasn't every day, it wasn't religious, but if there was something you could do, and then you found out it wasn't a journal, Justin, 
It was every Marine above the rank of squad leader that's in charge of other people has a notepad every day that they have to write notes on in order to help get everybody through the day of where you're doing. And I didn't have to write something very profound at the end of the day that, that's very Nelson and Trafalgar-like after I'm dead. I found out that all the notes that I took along the way, when you interpreted those every day on how, what was going on that day, what was the basic work ethic that day? Who had to go to dental? Who had to do this? Who had to do whatever? Who just had a baby and you wrote a little paragraph letter that welcomed that person's baby into the Marine Corps family when you were a sergeant, you wrote yourself a note that that's what happened that day. And then when you became more of a senior leader, it was very beneficial. And a lot of times when I get called to the Pentagon or I get called to make these really big, heavy decisions or to walk in to advise people that the weight of the world is on this general or this admiral's shoulders, and they're asking you, so what do you think? What would you do that's here? And you knew the decision didn't have to be made right then, but you knew what you were talking about, something in your head recalled something from 10 years ago, and you called your wife and said, I need you to go downstairs, go into this year, pull this out, and bring that back and lay that out with the general or admiral and go, some of these challenges, general, are not brand new. They're generationally, and here's what we had before, here's how we handled it, and here is how I would suggest we would go about doing that. And I was just blessed, Johnson, to be in an environment throughout my time for 32 years in the military, uh, to always be asked to come into the room to provide a certain perspective when I may not even have known what the basis of that perspective was, but that senior official said, we're gonna stop what we're doing today, go get me Sergeant Major LeHue. Mm -hmm. I want him to come into here, we're gonna have a five minute conversation. And then you see how they took that on as a leader. They didn't just have their mind made up, they didn't, you could see it really weighed. And I was really proud of the fact that I was part of an organization for all those years that had men and women in very senior positions for the most part in my career. And that can't be what somebody else had in their career. It might be a completely different thing. But along the way, I was very proud of the fact that the injections that I had had, or I was asked to come in at certain periods of time when it didn't make sense to me why I'm in that room or anything else. And then you have a conversation for three to five minutes. And then two weeks later, you see it play out on the national news. It wasn't about going back out on Facebook and beat your chest to tell somebody, I'm the one that told that person how to go ahead and do that. It was sitting back with my family and everybody else watching the news come out and going, man, that's pretty cool. What that person did was listen to what was there that day. And even when I didn't think that what I had to say was worth a grain of salt that was in there, that two minutes basically changed the direction of possibly the way the Marine Corps was going to be trained, equipped, and outfitted for the next 25 years. 
uh, it was pretty heavy, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love the I love the generosity both to yourself of of documenting these things and and trusting you know that you'd get that intuition of like oh I've seen this before let me go back and revisit that so I see the the way in which it benefits yourself but also I love what you said about how each generation has it slightly harder and the way in which you're paying it forward to future generations to give them a leg up on solving the challenges that will that will face them and I I want to make sure we we um talk about you know speaking of generosity what you're doing post service, which is really incredible. And so we'll we'll rewind the clock in a moment to talk about how you got here. But I want listeners to understand that the work that you're doing at History Flight, um, if you if you bumped into a, a Marine on the streets and, and they said, uh, you know, Justin, what do you do? What is History Flight? How do you explain to them the work that you do right now as Chief Operations Officer at History Flight? History Flight is a private MIA, Missing in Action Search and Recovery Organization that augments the U.S. Department of Defense in a very, uh, uh, you know, cohesive effort to go forward to roughly try to account for 81,000 missing service members that has been since roughly World War II. Uh, the door has kind of closed on a lot of people going back to look for previous wars from World War I and beyond. And I think a lot of that's generationally as it's coming up. Uh, and now we're more into as the World War II generation is dying out, you know, then that ebbs into the Korean War and the Vietnam. And, and, and my generation, why it was so important was my generation just grew up on the age old adage of it was ingrained as me as a young Marine is we don't leave our dead and wounded behind. And I am my brother and sister's keeper, meaning the greatest thing about the military is black, white, Puerto Rican, Jew. It doesn't matter when somebody out there is screaming for your assistance. I have yet to find in 32 years, regardless of what somebody's internal personal belief may be, that they will allow another person to suffer out there and then hide behind a building or something to allow to do that. The greatness in every element of the military was self uh, came after someone else. Service came before self. And I grew up in a generation that is very blessed to not have added to the score of the thousands of missing that came in the previous wars that are here, one, due to just the way that we go about treating warfare today. Secondly is due to the way the DNA processing is uh, today to be able to have those matches. But regardless of generation, um, I taught it in universities. It was taught to me. It was ingrained in me and it was applied in combat. And so it was really a natural progression in my life with a history background in that to be able to transition out of the Marine Corps to then go into a sense of service that was able to look at a void that is still in America's tapestry that is missing thousands upon thousands of people for their families. And in the archives of the United States, you can go open source and you can pull down Western Union telegrams 
And you can pull down family letters that after so-and-so's son was missing in action, they had wrote for years to the government about what's the status on this? And is there any possibility that my son will ever be found or home? You see these very heart-wrenching telegrams that start in the 1940s. And a lot of them in regards to the island of Tarawa, where we do a majority of our work, a lot of those telegrams arrived to these American families on Christmas Eve on 1943. That basically had a Western Union guy in a taxi cab all throughout America knock on someone's door with a piece of paper in their hand on Christmas Eve, hand it to them, say, I'm sorry. Because by that time, America knew what those meant, those telegrams. And some of these families opened those telegrams up. And not only did they lose one son, they lost two, three, four, and five sons all at one time. An entire lineage wiped out. But more importantly, in the National Archives, Justin, there are letters, hundreds of thousands of letters from families that were then going to ask the status and getting replies of, yes, we can confirm he was killed in action, but unfortunately in 1949, thousands of people throughout the United States got these telegrams that said, not only was your son killed in action, but we regret to inform you we're no longer searching for them and they're lost forever. Mm. Uh, I can only imagine being a Midwestern mom that gave up three of her sons to, to, to whatever, uh, or a Navy mom like the Sullivans that went down on the same ship on the USS Juno. And a lot of the movie Saving Private Ryan was based off of that story about five Sullivan brothers in the Navy being sunk. And, and, and the Navy can't tell America about it because it's still a code of secrecy and we can't let the Japanese know that this happened or the USS Indianapolis disappears, delivering atomic bomb parts to end the war, and it gets torpedoed by the I-75, and the men stay in the water for four days getting eaten by sharks because people can't break radio silence to tell people to do that. It's a heart-wrenching time. So when people in today's generation are very apt to go, why are they called the greatest generation? You know, we're doing our part too. You know, we've been fighting for 20 years. Why aren't we the greatest generation that's here? You, you, sit, you simply sit there and go, let someone else tell your accolades when your accolade, not you. Yeah. Because I now get to tell the accolades of a story of a generation that's not here to talk about themselves anymore. And more importantly is they didn't even talk about themselves when they were here. That's probably why they are called the greatest generation because it wasn't always about me to do that, right? There wasn't a house on any street in America that didn't have a blue star in the window next to somebody else's house through that six year period from 1939 to 1945 and basically, the highest suicide rate in America during those years were the guys who couldn't go and serve in the military because they felt like they weren't contributing and they were shamed to a portion to be a 4F. It was a different mentality. And the current generation 
is going to go and make the same mistakes of a previous generation that they don't have to if they just take a little bit of interest in going and finding out how they overcame pandemics, how a generation overcame the Spanish flu in 1918, how all these generations of people, how this racism thing that we have going on today, if you can turn around and show people videos from 1968 in Detroit that show the entire city on fire, and to do this, you can give people perspective and say, look, this is something that has happened. We can learn from this, and now we can move on from here. Mm -hmm. um, to be in this position in history flight, it provided an opportunity to be able to continue to tell a generational story at the same time when you can watch 1,500 channels on a TV today and you can flip every other channel and see something about a ghost chase over here to go do this or Amelia Earhart, we may have found her or hey, Adolf Hitler may not have died in that bunker in 1945. Let's devote 19 episodes to try to prove whether or not Adolf Hitler made it to Argentina or to do this. And you're sitting there just and going, you've got to be kidding me, man. When I have 81,000 plus stories of men that have at this time, um, given the utmost sacrifice, where each of their stories are due as much attention as any one of those stories, that are being sensationalized on TV. And you know what? It doesn't matter to me. You know why? Because I have a core of people who care, Austin. And I think that's a great metaphor in life is to surround yourself with a core of people who are passionate about your ideas, care for the right reasons to do things. And quite frankly, be in a position that after 32 years of wearing the uniform of a U.S. Marine, be in a position to be able to take joy in the fact when the U.S. Marine Corps or Army or Air Force Casualty Branch now knocks on the door of an American family, there's tears of joy by tears of sadness after 70 plus years when that person is telling that family, we didn't give up hope. It just took us a few years, but we just found your uncle or we just found your grandfather. And to that American family, they don't care how that happened. The end result, Justin, is it happened. And to that family, no monetary value can ever be placed on that knock on the door to say that America or somebody in America fulfilled a promise to that family that they would never forget their loved one or never leave a fallen comrade behind. And when you can show a generation today that that is important as 70 some years ago to today, that is what gives me in my heart the success that I know that long after I'm buried underneath my own headstone, the next generation is gonna figure it out here too in America and they're going to make it all work regardless of what's happening too, because that's the way they're created deep down inside. It's not what they're being fed or what they think every day is deep down inside. Everything that we are doing today 
is one of the last greatest things that is still all that's right and good about America today mm-hmm. that you can show generations that we fulfill promises and Americans don't go back on their promises. And our servicemen and women mattered. Their mm-hmm. lives mattered for what we have today. And to be able to look at the American flag that's draped on a casket, to be able to take that final six foot plunge that's down underneath the ground and be able to walk that person all the way from the Battle of the Bulge where they were lost or out on an island in the South Pacific, or maybe they were on a dive bomber that's 25 meters underneath the ocean that we got some DNA out of this kind of a plane to do that. And to be able to stand there at the point of doing the investigations, doing the wherewithal to go find them, uh, finding the resources to do that, and then finding them and knowing what you have, but you don't tell anybody. It's, sanct- it's sanctimonious. Like, I know I got it. That's not my job. It's the American military and the U.S. government's job to tell that family now that we have recovered this. And you turn those bones over to those individuals with the same loving care that we indoctrinated people to actually go and do that. And then you come back and you fly on those planes with those caskets. You bring them back to the lab. The lab makes those identifications. And then there is a decision made by a family on some day throughout the year, they're gonna bring that boy home. And to see the goodness of America turn out on the streets of America, of high schools let out to watch their kids line the streets, mm-hmm. to watch a casket from 1943 pass through the town in Illinois, Indiana, California. Even, even these places where everything today, Justin, is telling people they just don't do that anymore. Up in Oregon or in Seattle, and they're so twisted, no. When this happens, Democrats, Republicans, all that stuff goes aside and you see the goodness of what America truly is when all of these people come together, firefighters, first responders, police officers, all the airlines that are bringing them home and they give the water cannons over the planes and they do whatever and you sit there and watch people in the terminals go, what's going on out there? And you hear them announce throughout the terminal in Charlotte that after 77 years in 1943, this individual was finally being brought home. Wow. And, you just, and you just look at people from all walks of life, stand up, put their hand over their heart, or go find out what happens there. And if America can truly capture the element of what that feeling of America is, we're not going to have a question over the next 245 years about whether this nation is still going to be a nation, because it will. I love that. I love the, you know, I admire the purpose you found after your military service that I know a lot of guests I've had on the show have had to to kind of um, go through a journey to find that. And I love the, the power of the mission of History Flight and what you're doing. And for listeners in the show notes at beyondtheuniform.org, um, uh, I'll put a link to, it's a one minute video clip on YouTube of uh, the story of a World War II Marines remains that were found. That's very, very powerful to see 
the end result of everything that Justin and his team are doing behind the scenes. Um, I know we've only got about five five minutes left, and I actually want to just um, I want to drop all the questions and turn things to you and just say, you know, you've got you've got people listening who are on active duty thinking about what they're going to do when they're when they get out. You've got people listening who took off their uniform three or four years ago and they're thinking about their next career move. I'm just curious, you know, what what would you like to share with them? Any any final words you'd like to leave them with as they think about um Acceler or as they think about um, their post-military career and creating a new life for themselves and their family and achieving after service, anything that you'd like to share with them? Exactly, Justin. Don't be afraid to chase your passion versus working a job. Mm. You, you have now, whether you did two, four, 20, 30 years that's in that uniform, the, the, the military has given you, whether you believe it or not, these tangible skills that really a lot of people try to relate to their own job that they did in the military, especially, I believe, at the more earlier years, if there are people that only did four years and then they transition and they get out, I believe what they try to do, Justin, is they try to craft the resumes or they try to do what they can do to highlight the job they did in the military vice the intangibles that they were taught along mm. the way. Because I have found out in almost 10 out of 10 times in the civilian sector, you're really almost hired on your intangibles than you were the job that you actually did. And I have an individual that's in the Veterans Administration and he is a clinical psychologist and psychiatrist that deals with veterans all of the time. Yet I am an uncertified psychologist and clinical psychiatrist to him who calls me all the time when <laughs> has veterans that walk in that are having problems and their transitional problems are, for example, I'm a machine gunner in the Marine Corps. I don't have any skills they're applicable in today's society. And they went through the transition courses. They have a resume they're supposed to have, which you find out, Johnson, one of the greatest disservices that the military can provide a veteran, in my opinion, is this. A federal and a regular resume. There are two different resumes for a veteran to have according to whichever path that they're going to take. There may be a two-page resume that somebody at Google wants to have that you want to hire on to be an IT manager because you work communications in the Air Force. It was here. That is a completely different resume than an IT manager for a GS job once on board over here. And, they, and they're built a different way. I found that the military did a great disservice because they actually didn't provide them with those two resumes when they got out. They taught them all these things. They gave him all these resources. But I saw them come back to my unit when they would sit in the transition classes. And I would say, show me your resumes. And they didn't have them in their hands. And it was like the greatest thing that that transition service could have given them was two templates of resumes completely filled out for them to apply to these jobs that were there. 
30 years later, I found that in my same thing, Justin. I attended an executive transition course and I sat there for four days and I didn't walk out with either of those two resumes. But yet we filled out things on how to do these resumes to do that. And then I went and hired a resume writer that was out there. And then I was lucky enough to have access to an SES, Senior Executive Service personnel, and a lot of civilians around me when I transitioned that I took these back and I said, what do you think of these? And I just kind of scrubbed them and I said, you're not hurting my feelings, write them back. Every single one of them said, whoever you paid that resume service to do that, I wouldn't hire you a single thing if you sent that resume into me right now. It doesn't tell me who it is. It doesn't tell me who you are. They took all your evals and they pulled out what they wanted and you paid them how much to do that. And I had one of these SESs sit down, Justin, and say, Justin, I've seen your correspondence in this own headquarters. You can do a much better job writing your own thing. But you know what? I didn't have the confidence to write my own thing at that time period. And I think a lot of things comes to confidence. Why that individual calls me all the time that says, Justin, can you talk to this kid for an hour that just came in? Because he doesn't feel that he had the Marine Corps taught him anything. He, he just a machine gunner. He did this. And within an hour, Justin, we won't even mention putting rounds through a gun or anything else. I'll tell that individual everything else that was right and good about their four years, about showing up on time to work, having a square away uniform. A lot of these things that employers want on the opposite side has nothing to do with putting the rounds through a machine gun. And it was how they portrayed themselves. And then you go to the opposite end. He calls me on people that have retired after 30 years that are having a very hard time going out in the civilian community. And those people normally are the ones that have resumes that are nine miles long but they're not focused on anything that they're doing. They just basically say, I've been a leader of 20,000 people to do this and I can help your company do this. And they're wondering why they're not getting hired at these really $100,000 level jobs and all this other stuff. And I saw it in transition. Uh, they were focused on money. They were focused on a title or a billet that they thought was commensurate rather than following the passion after all those years of what truly it was that they could do. And the money is a byproduct of that. It will eventually come through to do this. But I actually found out that, hey, would it make sense to you, Major, okay, after all these years, or Lieutenant Commander or anybody else who did ballistic submarines and you did nuclear weapons, you did all this stuff that was here, but that's not translating to the job that you're applying for over here today. If that person were to apply for a job on that nuclear submarine with no military service whatsoever, would you put them in charge of the freaking second in command and the missile keys? And when you say it like that to them, they say this, Justin, of course not. I wouldn't do that. Well, why should they then do the same thing with you just because you served in the military for 25 years and you're now saying, I should, be, I should come out here to run your whole company? Mm -hmm. 
Why? Yeah. You, you have no idea what we're making. You have no idea what the purpose is, what anything else is here. And I appreciate what you're doing, but that comes full circle, Justin, with our conversation. It's going back and not leading with that stuff up front, getting to know the purpose, task, condition, standard, how you can fit into their purpose, not you saying it's all about me. This is what I've done. And I have found out in my life that that pays out in spades with people that go, I want you on my team. I don't know what it is about you. I didn't live the same life you did. I wasn't in Nazaria pulling bodies out of the thing. I do this, but there's something about you, man, that I know I need here. And I don't know what that is because you don't have the college degrees. You don't have this that's here. And if you just went into the monster.com generator, you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation today. But I know after talking five minutes with you today, that you can fit in very well with this company and we can give you that sense of purpose that you are really looking after. Cause why we're looking for the same thing here. And it's a, uh, Justin, it's a beautiful thing, man. <laughs> I love it. Well, unfortunately my next appointment is with a two year old son of mine. So I'm going to have to jump off. Thank you so much for your time. I would love to uh, continue the conversation because I feel like we're, we're just scratching the surface, but thank you for your example. Thank you for your service. Thank you for the work that you continue to do. And just for really providing with us, us with this compelling example of um, something that's, you know, something that is the opposite of so much of what's proclaimed today about this bombastic nature and pointing to accomplishments and prescribing a one size fits all approach. You're, you're really exemplary in all of these things. So thank you so much today for joining me, Justin. Justin, I appreciate that. And you keep doing what you're doing with the, uh, the format and the, and the thing that you're doing with the focus of this, because I truly believe it is one of those podcasts that is truly out there. There is thousands of podcasts that spit out a lot of things. And they spit things at people that they can take or not take. But this truly is a podcast. If someone tunes in, they may not listen to me, but there might be the podcast on episode 119 that applies to them that they can listen to for five minutes that actually does help. And the purpose is help veterans transition from wearing a uniform to still find a purpose and find a sense that is out there because the end result is in life, Justin, there's no blueprint for it. And if you truly do not identify yourself in life by that uniform, but that was just a period in your entire lifeline that makes the fabric of who you are that's there, then I don't believe that we're going to have, we're going to crack the nut, Justin, on helping a lot of veterans transition out there to a more smooth and fluid transition. And just know there are a lot of other people like you and I and thousands of others who have made that transition already that they can reach out to with no embarrassment or anything else that says, you know what? I'm not gonna charge you $2,000 for an hour's worth of advice. Just pick up the phone and I'm there to help. And, and, and I think that's really great with what you and your audience is doing. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Surface, surface, surface.
Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Nasiri, with help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, and our editor, Kathleen Dillon. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 330 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of more men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but we don't have nearly the resources to do so. If you know of a company that would like to advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them to beyondtheuniform.org. Third, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of beyondtheuniform.org. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll also find 330-plus episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll find a link for live events, typically four per month. You'll also find both free and for-purchase books that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career and life.